After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hey everyone, it's Raghu Marcus, another edition of Mind Rolling, and today I have the pleasure of uh, the company of somebody I just met in Asheville. I'm so thrilled. Like, I don't know a lot of people in Asheville, you know, and it's Vince Horn from Buddhist Geeks. Yeah, thank you. It's Welcome. good to be here in your, uh, in your home. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, for those of you out there who don't know, I just learned this, Buddhist Geeks has been around for for 10 years, guys. So Vincent and his wife, Emily, have really put a beautiful thing together. And there's some real connectivity as I started to get in and looked online and all that uh, with what we do. It's, uh, I think you even have a byline that, or not a byline, but something you mentioned in the thing uh, on the page, uh, translating age-old wisdom into 21st century code, mm. which I love. And we uh, we formerly had a network that we were involved with called MindPod Network, which we've now split off of, and it's uh, we now have the Be Here Now Network under Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation. But certainly, that is very much what we're interested in: is translating uh, this wisdom and get it to people who don't give a shit about Buddhism or Hinduism or any isms. They just want to get a life in balance on a day-to-day basis and get the right information and share it. I mean, that's certainly a millennial thing that I've found. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, we think we have some of the perfect people for that on the network. Uh, as I, you, Vince and I met for the first time the other day, had a cup of tea. Uh, and, um, and, of course, Jack uh, Cornfield and Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Cole. These are people that really embody that. A lot of my teachers, too. Yeah, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> all of ours. So, uh, yeah, so I feel a real affinity to what uh, Vince is doing with uh, Buddhist Geeks. So I thought it would be great to, to have him on the show. And uh, so I'm going to start with, um, I want to start with your definition of mindfulness. I mean, mindfulness now is, and I've said this before, another, we, I did a podcast on it last week, actually. So I'm following your thing a little bit about doing a series on the same topic, which I think is great. Uh, but uh, it's so commercialized now. It's such a byword. Yeah. It's like it's, it's as useless as guru is, is useless, right? I mean, it doesn't say love. I mean, all these words. They, it's, it's lost its real meaning. So give us a, a take on it from the point of view of how you started Buddhist Geeks and what, how mindfulness fits into uh, what you deliver. Yeah. Um, so mindfulness, um, well, I mean, it's changed obviously since I started practicing and doing Buddhist geeks, it's changed a lot. Um, and some of how it's changed has gone kind of back toward a more traditional understanding of it, I think. Um, but you know, initially when I first started practicing in the insight meditation tradition, went on retreat with Joseph Goldstein, you know, mindfulness was kind of described in a way where it seemed to have something to do with um, kind of noticing what was arising in the moment and sort of coming back to that noticing, you know, noticing what you're noticing as you're, as it's happening, you know, kind of in real time. And then that was kind of the, the, the type of mindfulness I, I was practicing. And of course there was the mindfulness that fit inside like these other schemas, like the seven factors of enlightenment, there was mindfulness and I did all these things. 
um, I never really quite understood that type of mindfulness. But then recently, I've really come back around to the understanding that mindfulness is about recollecting or recalling something. It's like remembering something. And that, that kind of meaning of, of, of to remember has really started to become significant to me. And it's, it's like, okay, what am I remembering or what do we remember when we practice um, or just when we're like living? And I, I, I think this is maybe a heretical view from a Buddhist standpoint, which mm-hmm. is, I think, good Buddhists actually become non-Buddhists. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, the Buddhist conception is always that you have this right view. You have like a view that's correct you know, about how reality actually is, like things are impermanent, things are changing, whatever. Um, you suffer when you try to hold on, all of that. Um, and then there's like the intention that comes with that, the correct intention to kind of realize it. And then as a result, there's mindfulness. You, you remember to come back to that. You remember to notice that. And my f- sort of experience of that has changed from remembering to notice like things like the three characteristics of experience, like everything's changing, there's no solid entity here. And every time, you know, there's an attempt to grasp, there's, there's pain, you know, there's suffering. Um, it's actually changed. Like that view for me fell apart at a certain point, or I realized that it was a view that I was choosing to recall over and over again. And it was leading to a particular kind of recognition and realization. And that there were other views that I could also try to remember and recall. And then it got really trippy because then it was like, well, what I'm choosing to remember what I'm coming back to is revealing something to it's revealing something to this experience. Um, but there's different facets of what can be revealed. And I just know like a tiny sliver of what's possible in terms of human consciousness. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, and I love the, uh, the remember and coming back that yeah. concept. I mean, Sharon talks about it a lot. Uh, and, uh, and talks about it. This is the beauty of our of the of the possibilities of us as humans that we can always come back whether it be you're focused on one point your breath in a in a meditative practice and you get lost and you realize you're lost instead of beating the shit out of yourself you just come back yeah. and the more that you do that the more uh, that becomes uh, automatic it becomes a pra- you don't think about it anymore you just continue to do that and that's a big breakthrough actually yes. in meditation yeah, that's a, that's a huge point point of entry of of entry. And yeah, this one feels like it starts to take off. Yeah, and of course, when I first met Ramdas way back in the day, remember, be here now. Mm-hmm. It was all it was about mindfulness. Only there wasn't that term for it. So mm-hmm. it's just uh, it's 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 a full circle for me. Mm. Uh, when I started, of course, we we were pushed into somehow into Vipassana meditation way back in the day by our guru, Neem Karoli Bhatt. Without, he, he was more like getting rid of us. He wasn't, why don't you go to that course? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it was more like that. Mm. So how did you, what turned you to even think that there was something beyond senses, mind, that you should pursue? What turned you when you were a kid? Uh, Not that you're that old now. Yeah, no one, I mean, I, I think I came by it honestly. Um, my family were new age uh, ag- agnostics. <laughs> so yeah, I call that's them. a new one. <laughs> so they were both really interested in spiritual stuff and kind of far out there. He had a little commune out in Mars Hill, which is like just 10 minutes down the road in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And we're like channeling some weird stuff and <laughs> doing all kinds of meditation. And so I grew up in that environment. And, and so to me that those kinds of things were, those were always, uh, happening around. And so I, I kind of pursued that in my early childhood and explored it and, and even meditated some. And then I kind of, uh, left it behind as a teenager and totally rebelled against that. And then eventually came back around to, it when I was older, um, in a new way and, and sort of, uh, practiced a different style of of meditation than the sort of new age style. It was, it was kind of more the strict Buddhist insight. What's stuff. the new age style? Well, you know, it's a lot of energy work oh, and okay. a lot of like kind of, um, you know, uh, psychic phenomena and, you know, working with different kind of colors and entities, oh, yeah. stuff yeah. like that. 
um, although the Buddhists talk about that stuff too, it's just yeah. not like central. Yeah, well, especially the Vajrayana yeah. Buddhists. It's yeah. yeah, yeah. So that you just you were launched out the as a child basically into this. Uh, when I'll tell you, yeah. my I, I, how old are you? Uh, Thirty three. Yeah. So you're the age of my son's ballpark, and uh, one of them just grew up just like you in the lap. Yep. Of it all. I yep. mean, and there, I mean, and also grew up with Hanuman, because right? mm-hmm. that's that's a big deal for us, Hanuman, mm. uh, that we were given. And uh, Is that like a chant or a mantra? No, Hanuman the monkey. The, the monkey. monkey. Oh, okay. The, monkey the, god, the Hindu god. The Hindu god. monkey god, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so he grew up with that. Yeah, and the chant is the Hanuman Chalisa, 40 yeah. verses, and yeah, that we do, the okay. Krishna does. Yes. Has spread around this country yes. quite a bit. Um I heard that. Yeah, and... Uh, he grew up in the lap of that. Yes. Right? I mean, absolutely. Then he became a, uh, he went to school and uh, he became, you know, he's a, he started a developer and, uh, you know, all of that stuff, but totally scientific mind-based. And, uh, and to this day, his, if I see it, I'll believe it. <laughs> I, I, can, so it's I can respect that. I can really respect that because it's like, you know, I really wanted to, differentiate myself from my family and you know really you know it's like when you're inside it you you start to you you see some of the ways in which it's deluded <laughs> no, no offense to you or your you know or to my family but i mean my, our son is gonna feel the same way i imagine yeah right. he's gonna be like oh silly meditating parents yeah right, right. who knows yeah um you know it's all about heart though i mean and and ultimately Ultimately, it's just that. I wanted to talk about, um, let's see, some of the other things that I, uh, I mean, what's really interesting, of course, is, um, you know, Buddhism in the internet age. And you talk a lot about it. You've written some blogs about it that I've seen on the site and so on. And uh, let's talk about, uh, you know, what is it that, entices you in terms of the possibilities of and and we're talking about buddhism but to me it's really i mean it's hard because there's no good words for the whole thing maharaj had the best word for the whole thing my guru subek it's all one there's only one thing going on okay so from the one how does that get translated through the digital era that we are in and what is the efficacy of it and what's the fall down of it yeah i mean i i probably have a slightly different view i'm I'm sort of i'm wrestling with the paradox of the one and the many you know how how both seem to co coexist and co-arise and you know on the many side of the street it's like the internet is this whole new emergent um technological and cultural infrastructure and and space and sphere that we're operating in that's never happened before so far as we know and so you know on that side it's like we're dealing with something that's totally new that we haven't grokked fully or grasped and it's it's so it's so nascent that it's like we're we're all just you know trying to wrap our minds around what it is we're doing here <laughs> Um, so on that side, I'm like totally don't like totally confused most of the time. And then the other side, like on the one side, it's like, yeah, like, but there's something that's timeless and primordial and fundamental and essential. And that hasn't changed at all. You know, one bit, like if you say it's changed, like, okay, show me, you know, and if you show me whatever you show me, I know that's not totally it, you know, cause it's like, that's, that's, it's bigger than that. You know, it includes more than that. Yeah. Um, so like for me, I, I kind of just feel like that tension and that paradox is is sort of like what i wrestle with every day and i feel like you know in one sense the one you know that that universal essential aspect of just being alive is always taking new form you know it's always coming up with something new you know and the internet is like the most recent uh development or the most recent emergence from you know from the primordial void of you know who knows whatness (laughs) and you know so it's like what what form is it taking now you know what is like what what is 
what is the internet? You know, what is it revealing to us um, about ourselves and about the planet, about, you know, this time and, um, and what is spirituality in the internet age? Like, what does it mean to be a practitioner? Cause it's, it's like, it, you know, going back in history, you know, when, when Gutenberg, you know, un- unveiled the, you know, the pr- printing press and then, you know, like 300 years later, the French revolution happened because everyone like could read and knew, you know, suddenly knew conceptually that there's something off, you know, that like changed the whole structure of their society and change also like spirituality and change, you know, how, like how they understood everything. And I feel like we're going through something similar now. Like maybe we're just in the middle of it. Um, it feels that way. Like it feels like in between two worlds, like of the Western enlightenment and the, you know, the rational individual and the internet, which is like the relational network, you know, um, and it's 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 not about individuals. It's about being a node in a in a kind of constantly connecting system um, or organism, even. And you know, so spirituality feels to me like it's moving away from that individualist like paradigm of like awakening is about me and my experience. You know, it's 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 something that's like it's a collective uh, emerging phenomena, and it's also I think the idea that there is a sort of final endpoint, you know, is also something that feels unique to the old paradigm, like, like that develop, there's this progress and we can eventually kind of nail it and be done. Um, to me, it's like the internet age is always about like, it's, it, 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 it's something is always coming next. There's always change something constantly. new. Yeah. And something emerging and new forms that we couldn't predict. And so I feel like maybe, it, maybe it's like we have to re-understand awakening in those terms too. Like, what does it mean? Um, to awaken in the internet world. Those are some of the things I think about. What about, what's the downsides of it? What's the, what are the uh, negatives? I mean, if this is, this is sort of my sense of it at the moment is like every paradigm reveals something and it conceals something else. You know, like when we became individuals, we suddenly became aware of like certain aspects of being alive and being human you know, and rights, you know, so we have, if we're an individual, we have rights, you know, we got to protect those rights and we have to have a government that does that for us. You know, we want to be able to exchange freely and all of those things. And we want to be able to realize, you know, uh, we want to be able to kind of constantly be realizing something new, you know, uh, as individuals. And so with the internet, um, it feels like maybe we're, what's revealing is, is a sort of the social network nature of humanity more. It's like re- revealing that back to us. You know, it was like we knew that before, maybe in more like tribal communities, but now it's like coming back online. You know, it's like on Facebook, like every time you comment, <laughs> you see 10 other people jump in and, and then you spend the rest of the, I spend the rest of the day thinking about, okay, well, that person said about Trump and Hillary and, mm. you know, it's like, oh, wow, I'm seeing in real time how my view and my sense of identity is being co-constructed through these lateral networks of communication mm. at light speed. You know, it's like I can't separate myself from the network. That's not a, those are, that's not a bad thing. It's not necessarily. Revealing. Not necessarily. I think the downside is, um, and this is where I've like really been curious about technology and how it's developed and designed. You know, is it like that's the half of me as a technologist, and the other half's like a contemplative. And one thing uh, this media theorist, whose name is Douglas Rushkoff, recently pointed out is that companies like Facebook and Google, they're increasingly building their services and their platforms to put us into algorithmic ghettos of thought. You know, they're, they're creating algorithms that feed us what we want to see. You know, you type something in Google, as of the last few years, you get what they think you want to see. When you go to Facebook in your Facebook feed, they feed you more and more of what, you, what they think you want to see, which is what you like mm. and comment on. Mm. And so actually the downside is we're getting filtered more and more into these isolated bubbles of thought um, as opposed to really realizing like that the real, you know, the real connective potential of what the, what the peer to peer network represents. Yeah. Okay. That's a good downside. I mean, that's a, <laughs> that's big, a big downside. downside. It's a huge. Downside. Yeah. It might be what's causing things like Trump and Brexit. You know, it could be like when we get isolated, we become, you know, we become more nationalistic like we become more identified with our tribe. Like I had a friend on Facebook recently say he did this poll, you know, like one of these like internet polls and it said, you know, I have a democratic brain and he shared the results and he said, 
anyone's interested in checking this out, you know, this is what I am. He's like, but then I don't know that I have any Republican friends on Facebook. And I'm like, shit, we're really in trouble if we don't have any friends who disagree with us. Right. Um, and so that seems to be like, ironically, the internet seems to promote like a greater sense of, uh, being buffered yeah. from things we don't agree with polarization yeah just increases yeah that. yeah because if i see something i don't like i can just go up to the you know menu bar and just go somewhere else yeah, yeah. delete <laughs> i don't away. have to like live in the ashram and deal with the person who like yeah. pisses me off i can just right. know, go somewhere else that's beautiful i love that because that's exactly a truth mm -hmm. of, of of working in the situation on the path and if you end up in an ashram i mean you say this and i just remember being in india and and the <laughs> the kind of people that you would want to delete immediately okay <laughs> unfriend unfriend and you can't <laughs> you know oh god <laughs> yeah and you know to be honest like even for me i've i've because i grew up as a millennial i think I've rarely had to be in a situation where I feel really uncomfortable like that. I've had to actually seek it out intentionally through practice or through like intentionally following Donald Trump and intentionally like, you know, staying friends <laughs> with someone. Far, yeah, it yeah, might be. It might be. And yet for me, it's like, I, I feel like that's what I have to do to counter that, you know, that isolationist tendency. Yeah. Aside from that, which just occurs to me. Yeah. Having things that are prickly. That yeah. you get friendly with yeah. is an extraordinarily great teaching on a day to day. I don't care if it's, it could be, uh, I'll give you a good example of something really dumb and stupid. I got a haircut today. Okay. And I had this, you know, we were going to do this podcast and I'm running around getting it all together, this, that, and the other. And because she just cut my hair, you know, it's, I, it's like I'm wearing a hair shirt. Right, and I started thinking about that, and then it led me to everything that I do, that we do, basically, is how can we get more comfortable? How can we make things nicer? Yeah. How can we get out of whatever situation that's got some burrs under the saddle, shall we say? As stupid as a, a thing this was, it just this is what we do day to day to day. So you're engaging with trump because it's uncomfortable and you also want to see what how the other half lives yes uh, yes i think that that's a uh, very admirable vincent i don't know if i could do that one but very admirable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's difficult when his when his uh when his ranting and raving comes through on my twitter feed i just i do a double take every time yeah that, <laughs> oh my god you're something to do that <laughs> i i gotta tell you though uh my own experience of of the net uh, has really come to the fore because of my work with the Love Server Member Foundation, as we talked, and representing Ram Dass and the teachers that we have in common, Joseph and Jack, Sharon, all of them, and of course Neem Karoli Baba and others. And um, what happened with us, uh, Ram Dass said to me, look, one thing we should do is make sure that everything that we have, and we, you know, we have four, four and a half, five decades of incredible media that he's done. Yeah. Not just him, but everybody from, you know, Ginsburg to, you know, God knows, you know, to Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, and he said, we have to make this available mm -hmm. to the next generation. So see, see, this would be a mission of yours, me as a director. So I go, okay, how do I do that? You know, um, and beautifully, people started coming who really, you know, first it was podcasts, Duncan Trussell, who you know, Duncan. Um, and then it was just people who could really cre help us create platforms that the people that we're talking about could visit yeah. and could use, and they were handy at. And the feedback and this is this has been going on oh about four years now i mean this the, the foundation started and the website started 2005 or something but in the last four so it's like 11 years old in the last four years or so it has really blown up yeah people you can tell people really want this information yes and i have seen 
So when you start to do the, okay, what's the positive and what's the negative of, the, of, of spirituality being disseminated on the net? It's to me so far in favor of positivity rather than there is negatives there for sure there's, there is, but mm-hmm. the, the, uh, the upside is just so greater than the downside because I see people's reaction. I mean, the mail that we get, the reactions we get, we just put out a, a an app, uh, it's a Ramdas, just, you know, you can get a lot of the, we're just feeding stuff from the website and so on into the app, right? Because who goes to websites anymore? Certainly not millennials uh, for the most part. Yeah, sure. So in literally, this is in two weeks, 20, 20 odd thousand, I think almost 25,000 people downloaded this app now, which, you know, is not a game app where there's, you know, hundreds of thousands in the, but for a spirituality thing, significant, it's, you know, yeah. it's definitely significant and it's definitely proves that this, this way that has been brought to the fore by, through the magic of the mystery, shall we say, hmm. is definitely, definitely a, a wonderful af- a effect that is going on. So, hmm. yeah, that's certainly in my, my experience of it. Uh, but, um, but it's all about maintaining presence. Forget about the net, the not the net. But in the midst of our lives right now, which are, I mean, the level of multitasking and, and being on our phones, you go into a restaurant, I mean, it's insane, right? I mean, you sit around, everybody, the whole restaurant's on their phones. I'm playing Pokemon Go right now. You, you are? Not right? really. <laughs> <laughs> I bet there are a lot of Pokemon out here, though. <laughs> yeah, really. I don't know. Um, okay, so, the, and I know, and we're going to talk a little bit, because I know you guys have retreats, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. But certainly, maintaining presence within, I, I can't say it's easier for me, because, I've become, because of the work that I'm doing, I am, I'm pretty well as lost as everybody else in terms of that phone you know, is the crux of my whole, I mean, fortunately my, my life is my work, so it's, it's not quite as bad, but, but certainly the distractions, the same thing. So what have you, what do you talk to people in your milieu about presence and maintaining that presence within this really bifurcated existence? Yeah. And that's, I mean, I think you're, you're highlighting, you said, what what are the upsides and the downsides of the strengths and weaknesses? That's definitely one of the weaknesses right now with digital technologies, the fragmentation of attention. Um, I'm, I sort of have been looking at it in terms of, in, in the same way that, you know, say in, in your generation, there was, you know, a sort of growing sex positive movement. And then you had, of course, the sex negative movement too. You had people that were like, oh, sex is bad. We don't want to deal with that. And then you had like a kind of liberation of people saying like, Hey, sexuality is not a bad thing. Like we need to like explore this and examine it. I feel like there's something similar happening in the millennial generation, but it's around technology. Mm. You know, there's like a tech, there's like people that are technology positive and technology negative. And, you know, I, for whatever reason, I kind of land a little bit more on the technology positive side because I feel like, well, first of all, this isn't going away. Like it's, we're not going to be able to eradicate it. And so if we can't eradicate it and it's here, we should treat it as an ally and as something that we could actually utilize in service of our deepest aims, in service of remembering our deepest aims, you know, and my, being mindful of what's most important to us. Um, you know, presence, I think, is one of the things that's really useful to remember um, in the way that you're talking about it. And so kind of what part of what I talk about is like one, OK, there's this the, there's the old school stuff that just works, you know, like sitting down meditating, you know, doing, doing sadhana, doing practice to help kind of defragment the mind, you know, outside of using technology. But then there's the whole question of, as I'm using technology, how do I use it in service of maintaining presence? Um, And how do I work with the fragmented nature of it? And how do I, how do I actually utilize the strengths of that too? Um, Because there are like, the way I've been thinking about it is one of the downsides is we're fragmented, but the upside is we're, we're soaked in perspectives. You know, we're holding so many views and so many ways of looking simultaneously 
uh, many of us, although some of us are isolated too. I mean, but that's the potential of the internet is to really hold a lot of different views. Um, it's hard to penetrate that because we, because our minds are so distracted and scattered and I feel that all the time. Um, so, you know, for me, it's a lot of how I work with people and talk to people is like, let's look at how we can adapt those meditative practices to the, these new contexts. Like how, what does it actually mean to practice mindfulness while emailing? What does it mean to practice inquiry while, um, you know, while typing in your password? You know, what does it mean to like, um, to make everything a meditation practice for real, you know, and to embed that into our use of technology? That's one part. And then, and then the other part is how do we then design in those values into the emerging technologies? How do we as makers and designers and engineers and people who have a say, even people who use technology and give feedback to the makers, like how do we um, encourage the design principles of what has made those things to be in, in concordance with what's most important to us? Yeah. That's well, hard. That's yeah. harder. Actually, why don't you take an, you just as an example, how do we be mindful in just sending an email? How do we? Well, I mean, in, I mean, one answer is I'm still figuring that out. <laughs> um, but the other answer is, you know, uh, I'll take focus more than mindfulness here because that's that's been more how I work mm. with email. Like, how do I stay present, you know, in a in a concentrated way? Um, and for me, like, I treat the emailing as the object of focus, mm. and I treat the external distractions in quotes as like all of the things that are happening on my computer and my phone. And I try to reduce the external distractions, just like in the old monasteries, you know, they say, don't you know, be in a, if you want to practice concentration, be in a monastery where you're, you're not right in the middle of a huge city. Cause there's going to be all this noise and it's going to disrupt your concentration practice, but be close enough that you can get the things you need. Um, you know, there's all these sort of details in the old, old texts about like how to develop concentration and how to get the right environment for it externally. And I sort of think like we have to figure that out with our technology. Does it mean, you know, blocking Facebook using certain programs? Does it mean like, you know, only having just the email open? Are there certain ways people work with it, you know, minimizing the dis external distractions? And then, you know, and then working with, you know, okay, this is my object. I open the email. I focus on what's being said. I really read it. I really understand it. I contemplate what do I need to do in response to this? Is this something I need to do something? Do I need to just archive it? Do I need to sit on it and wait to respond? Um, and I sort of figure out, okay, what am I doing? And then I do it. And then I go to the next one. And at some point I find myself on Facebook in the same <laughs> way that like the mind wanders, yeah, you know, right. when you're meditating, it's like I'm, I'm on Facebook yeah. responding to something. Oh, I'm noticing. I return, I come back. Like I strengthen the muscle of attention by returning to the object of focus. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I have periods of time where I practice that as a practice, as a formal meditation. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Um, so I think things like that, where it's like yeah. getting creative and trying to figure out like how, how these things could oh, be meditation. A, yeah. It's applying a concentration or one pointed practice yeah. to whatever you're doing, which is a big part of what mindfulness is. You yeah. cannot, uh, this thing I, I did uh, last week with a, a friend of mine around mindfulness. And, and, you know, I, I remember saying there is no way you can even enter into any mindful, aware field without being able to have one-pointed concentration. True. I mean, and so the whatever practice it takes to get to that one-pointedness, yeah, you got to do that. I mean, that's a you know, you got to form that habit, so that when you are deciding, okay, I'm going to just, I'm going to focus. I have, I have, uh, you know, twenty emails. I'm going to focus on. Just I'm opening the email, I'm reading the email, I'm aware, and so on and so forth. Um, I I have the fortunate or un, no fortunate um, I, that we get a lot of emails, and Ramdas particularly, of course, gets a lot of emails, and I'm uh, filtering them because he cannot possibly he doesn't have the bandwidth uh, at this stage of the game to handle it, so I'm doing it, and. And then I see some of it is deep suffering. I mean, you can only imagine people writing to him about all sorts of things. And I can see right away, I can go, okay, 
I am completely not able to be mindful in this moment to answer that. And I put it in, I, I def, I just put it in a, you know, I, I just put it in a file and go, okay, I have to bring myself to a point where I can. Mm. So I get this in my face about where I'm at. Yeah. Every moment. Yeah. When I read the, these particular emails. Yeah. So um, that's a hard practice. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, you know, it's, it's suffering, people suffering. It's not, uh, it's not like getting an email. Oh, Jesus, the paper isn't coming today. And yeah. What are we going to do? And it's faceless too. I think is one of the other challenging parts. It's it's the written word, and it's you know it's not like we're sitting in front of another person and like hearing the suffering. It's, yeah, yeah. It's like it abstracted too. Yeah. But uh, talking about uh, one th- one other thing that intrigued me, um, and something we're involved with actually in developing ourselves, which is apps. And mm-hmm. um, um, I think you've run into a couple of them. Uh, and it's it is mindfulness being commercialized. I mean, there's so many meditation apps out there. There's one that you mentioned that interested me called Calm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell me about Calm. Just the word is like okay. I'm yeah. already it's an app that and, I like. And it's Calm dot com actually. Oh, it is <laughs> Calm dot com. Yeah, okay, yeah. Too good. Too. Good. Yeah, I mean, there's there's several good meditation apps out there. Headspace, Calm dot yeah, com, Budify, which is one yeah. that I was part of, um, and you know, my understanding of calm is that it's sort of, it's just very simply sharing with you a kind of, um, a scene, like you're actually somewhere like in a, um, you know, lake or river, and then you're getting a guided meditation that's short and to the point. And I think their, you know, their focus seems to be on really introducing meditation to the masses through the digital medium. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that they and some others are doing a really good job of, of kind of, you know, really micro make, making meditation quite micro and quite mobile so that people can kind of get a taste for it and, and, and kind of integrate it in that sense into busy lives. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's my understanding of what they're doing. And I think they're turning on, you know, new generations of people to, to mindfulness. And that's meditation. a good thing. It depends on where you look at it from. If you, you, you know, if you look at it from like, the long time like hardcore meditation practitioner perspective i've seen a lot of people criticize it because it's shallow and it's not as deep as what they did and you know like and i understand that and i feel that sometimes um but then you know from another point of view from the point of view of someone who like has never had the experience of just dropping into their you know into the moment or, or very rarely or, or not certainly not intentionally um, it's a huge relief and it can open doors that, that weren't open before. Yeah. So this goes back to this thing, you know, we talked about mindfulness as, as just a commercialized thing at this point, which, you know, and these apps are commercializing it or they're monetizing it. I'm sure that people have sincere desire for other people to be able to open. Mm-hmm. And then you, you read all these articles about, yes, uh, Goldman Sachs has instituted a mindfulness program and boy, Yes, stockbrokers are doing way better on yes. a monthly basis. Our accounting shows it. Yes, and people react and go, "This is are you out of your mind?" Yeah, this is taking something that has nothing to do with the kind of uh, uh, action and resultant action. As a, I mean, and then there's the other side, which I kind of I'm coming more to the other side, mm. which is. Hey, and you just said this. God knows somebody may wake up a tiny. It's like going to do yoga, and and you're doing it because a you want to get more fit, you want to meet a mate, you know. There's some nice people down there, and you have no sense of the true meaning of yoga. Yoke, and then suddenly, I mean, I can't tell you how many people I know about this because of. Krishna Das, we did all this work together. They hear Krishna Das, and suddenly some bell goes off mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that leads them into this whole other, you know, really delving into themselves like yeah. they've never done before. Yeah, and yoga then becomes a part of it. So who's yes. nobody? No, I mean it. It's it's there's an upside there, and I'm starting to think. Yeah, you know, and even though I, you know, I can get a little bit cynical about all this stuff, and 
you know, we've been doing this. I was in Bodh Gaya with Joseph in the first courses that were happening way back in the day. And, uh, and he, by the way, and I say this, I don't know how many podcasts I've said this on, but Joseph Goldstein has a book called Mindfulness. That if you want to really grasp what mindfulness truly is, how it can be effective in your life on a day-to-day basis, and how much it covers of one's potential living dharmically. Get that book, okay? That book. I, I've done a couple of podcasts with Joseph just on that. I could do another 60 on that book. I mean, yeah. First of all, it's a huge book. Yeah. I don't know if you have it, but... I do, yeah. I do. And yeah. I was at a couple of the talks where he was originally... He did like 50 talks or whatever. I was at a couple of them at the forest refuge where he was delivering them sequentially uh-huh. and yeah. they're really good. Yeah. You lucky guy for that. It was, yeah, it was a good, yeah. good talks. So I didn't, I didn't give him a fair shake by the way, when I said, you know, this is my understanding of what I learned from Joseph when I first started. That, that was my understanding. It was certainly not the depth of his understanding. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's still on the, uh, using the technology and we talked about apps and you talked about something technodelics. Yeah, man. EEG headsets. And so I, that made me really curious. Talk about that. Tell me what that is. Tell us. Well, um, it's sort of a, it's sort of a, obviously a play on technology and psychedelics and the notion that, you know, technology, as Terrence McKenna said, you know, the, fu- the f- future drugs will com- be computers and, and future computers will be drugs. And, you know, he was kind of like, prophetically seeing the direction that things were heading and talking about virtual reality well before it's became mature. And there's just this emergence in the technology space right now of a combination of, you know, virtual and augmented mixed reality technologies, headsets um, that are now being, you know, developed by the same people I mentioned before, Google and Facebook and Microsoft and all these big players sinking just tons of money and tons of time and they're really impressive when you use them and they're really mind-blowing and they really alter your perspective when you immerse yourself in a visual auditory reality that it's programmable um there's also just the you know huge number of new and smaller and more effective sensors you know biosensors that are being built into our phones and built into all kinds of wearable you know devices and all of those things are tracking and, and can be, you know, inputted into programs and then, you know, be used as part of a feedback loop that's programmed and, and you know, mm. digitized. And what I'm seeing, you know, among the folks that I've talked to in Buddhist Geeks, you know, at the kind of convergence point of consciousness and technology is that there are people who are building these technologies intentionally to alter perspective and reveal certain aspects of aspects of consciousness to people through technology by changing the external environment and thus, you know, basically sending people on, on very altered trips. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's, they don't have to swallow anything. You just put the headset yeah, right. on <laughs> and it's early days, but even the early stuff is pretty mind blowing and pretty trippy. And so that's kind of what I meant by tech, technodelics mm. and these mind altering technologies. Yeah. yeah. I get a call from uh, Duncan Russell a couple of weeks ago and he said listen I've been using a VR thing and they've straightened it out so he said previously there was a lag and it made you dizzy yeah and he said that's gone they fixed it he said uh, I want to get a camera crew I want to go out to Ram Dass's and I just want to sit with him when he does his morning meditation I want to film it in VR so that you can sit with Ram Dass forever I go Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's going to be, that's probably going to be popular because, you know, this year, I mean, this year is going to be the year that VR really hits the mainstream and then augmented reality after that. And I mean, what's so interesting about it is it's psychedelics, of course, hit a huge number of people, um, especially, you know, in the boomer generation and your generation. And that really, like, you know, look at what happened there. I mean, both the upsides and the downsides again. But 
No downsides. No downsides, except for some of the people that, you know. Of course. <laughs> no downsides. Well, I've seen some of the downsides. You have, haven't you? Sure. I've seen people that have done, done too much LSD and <laughs> right. not, haven't taken care of their, their lives. Uh, I'm being flippant. So okay. Don't. Sorry. I, I, you know, I don't know what your experience is, but um, I think the same, it's like maybe a similar kind of phenomena going to happen, but like on a much broader scale mm. because there's much less of a taboo around putting something on your head or using a technology, mm. even though there are a lot of people are opposed to it. Um, it's not nearly going to have the same pushback as psychedelics did. You can, you think you can have the same integrative kind of experience? I don't know if it'll be the same. Um, Similar. I, I think it'll be, it will be crazy enough. You know, it'll, it will, it will be able to trigger enough of a sense of questioning reality of like really investigating like who am I now that it'll, it'll trigger those kind of existential mm. crises and inquiries. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, when I did trip and, uh, the, uh, intense interconnective, uh, relationship with everything was, important isn't even it's not i mean it was crucial i thought that when i met this being neem karoli baba who was a realized being that was not living in any kind of relational rational me you nothing like that i had an i had something a clue as to what that was you know and i was more comfortable with it it was still scary i mean when i first met him i was like this is i don't I don't. I can't believe I would have used the word computer back then. You know, nineteen seventy, whatever. But uh, it was like a, I might have said to myself, "This is some kind of machine. This is not. There's no reacting going on. I've never met anything where there's no subject object that I, hmm. you know. And it was like that kind of. It was a scary thing in a way. Hmm. And but it wasn't because there was also that complete interconnected relationship with everything. And the fabric was, of course, unconditional love. Mm. But so that's how powerful psychedelics were for us back then. I mean, yeah. Ram Dass will say the same. Obviously, Ram Dass and Leary, <laughs> they did that thing. But um, but it'd be interesting to see what happens with VR and then and um, and how that progresses. Yeah, and EEG headsets and all these sort yeah. of things that are also yeah monitoring that stuff. Hey, there's a great quote so I just brought up from um, what is his name? Shinzen Young. Mm-hmm. Is he a Westerner? Yeah, Shinzen Young's a Westerner. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Our current systematic ways of bringing people to stream entry could be described generically as two component systems. We give people certain ideas, and he calls that darshana, and we give people certain practices, sadhana. I envision the possibility that in the future there might be a third component added. Science, technology-based boosters, modern upaya. Yeah. That's a, I love this, uh, this quote you got from. Who is he, first of all? Uh, Shinzen Young's an uh, American, um, uh, I guess mostly Vipassana teacher, but he's kind of eclectic in his approach. He pulls on Zen and, and, and uh, Shingon Vajrayana as well. Mm. So he's kind of, an, kind of a synthesizer of practice. Oh. And very technical and very geeky, you know, like an engineering mindset. Oh. So he gets really, he really nerds out on the technical aspects of meditation. So, so really analytical people like myself um, get into that, you know. Mm. Um, and he's also, uh, you know, interested in the kind of convergence of the Western Enlightenment and the Eastern Enlightenment. You know, the, the two worlds that have something to offer each other. And so he's sort of been at the forefront of that you know, as a grandfather of that. Um, in in many ways, and um, that that's kind of where this is coming from. His interest in technology, um, and I, I tend to think he's probably right. You know that, like, if we weave those technology tools, technodelics, and contemplative technologies, because I see that as like a different class of technology. Um, you know, ones that are intentionally aimed at speeding up certain types of contemplative awarenesses or development, which isn't necessarily the same as taking a far out like having a far out uh transcendent experience it may it may be even more kind of progressive or developmental or like helping you 
how figure out how to meditate in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I can really, I can already see some of those technologies being useful. Like this is a simple example, but I have a, a new thing I've been playing with called the Lumo Lift. And it's just a, um, it's just a sensor that you strap onto your shirt. And when you slouch for more than a certain period of time, it vibrates. No. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, what, it's 80 bucks or whatever. And I've been sitting with it, you know, meditation and seeing like, to what degree does this, is this thing a kind of external mindfulness reminder? Because, you know, it seems like a lot of the time when we lose focus, like our body collapses and it, 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 it I want reminds this thing. Us. What is it? It's called the Lumo Lift. L-U-M-O. L-I-F-T. Yeah, and so that's like a really simple example of something that could be utilized as a modern upaya. That's a Zen thing. Like when you start slouching, you get whacked. Right? Absolutely, it's 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 the digital equivalent equivalent of the Zen stick. Yeah, um, but it hurts less. <laughs> <laughs> there should be one where you can raise up how much it hurts, <laughs> it like shocks you. Self <laughs> flagellation. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like, just you know, put it uh, put it on your nipples. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> God, um, that's just for guys, though. Yeah, I think no, okay, that we're the only no, ones that would want to do that anyway. Right, now we're really getting out there. <laughs> uh, um, I wanted to. Uh, well, I want to hear a little bit about um, what you guys do at Buddhist Geeks. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, Buddhist Geeks. Um, it started as the, just the podcast. You know, we we were just wanting to talk to all these people about you know Buddhism in the internet age, and um, eventually. You know, as my wife and I um, and the other people that we worked with, eventually as we kind of started to come into our own more as practitioners and even started to teach a little bit, it sort of changed and it kind of also became a platform for exploring you know, new ways of practicing together in community and um, kind of a way for us to experiment with new ideas and new models um, and retrieve old ones, you know, and see, see what they look like now. Um, so that's what it's been like for the last several years. So we've, we've put on conferences where we had different people come in and talk mm-hmm. that that's pretty standard, but we've also c- tried to create like virtual communities of practice and experiment with different mm, models. Cool. there, sitting together through Google hangout, you know, in mm-hmm. real time mm-hmm. and, you know, um, d- doing different things, you know, mostly in real time through video stuff, but eventually I think virtual reality, you know, that'll, it'll translate into that medium as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, today um, it's become something of a of a kind of meta sangha. It's kind of how I think of it. M e t a. You know, um, a sangha of sanghas or a community of communities. It, it sort of attracts people who are both interested in certain ways of practicing and styles, but they're also open to and curious about other things, um, and wanting to explore together with other folks who are doing the same thing. And yeah, I don't know if, you know, if the communities that you've been in, but some of the ones I've been in, when you, when you come in and you start trying to question the fundamental, you know, the rules and the fundamental like design principles, it actually, you know, people don't respond well so oftentimes and they, you know, they get pissed. The teacher gets pissed or students get pissed and you, you know, you find yourself feeling like, okay, I can't, I can't bring these things up here. Um, it's not appropriate. And in fact, it's usually not appropriate to do that because you're trying to question the fundamental thing that everyone else is trying to like develop faith in. <laughs> um, and so our thought was, could we create a space where people can question those mm. things and isn't necessarily about learning a particular approach, but rather is a, about learning how to approach all these approaches. Um, and so that's kind of what it's become. And as a result, you know, Emily and I have, have are part of that and, and we support that, but we also are doing our own approach in a different place, which is, um, called meditate.io mm. and that's that's kind of our you know approach to mind training in the digital age like our mm. our system if you will mm. and we felt like it was really necessary to separate those two so buddhist geeks wasn't just like about our approach oh. it was like a place where people could you know kind of critique approaches and try different approaches and hear people talk about their practice who'd done certain things for a long time like had really gone you know deep with shinzen young or had really you know it had been like on the devotional path or, you know, had really plunged the depths of something mm. that was, you know, sounded really similar, but also had differences, you know, and could learn Beautiful. from each other. I love that. Yeah. It's an experiment. Really great. Um, 
and in terms of the the work you do around contemplative practices and mindfulness and working with people, how do you bring in compassion slash love the heart, which we of course that's our tradition. I yeah. mean, we were fortunate that Maharaji gave us. I don't know how it happened. Obviously, uh, the devotional part, it's bhakti yoga, but yeah. then we were given... That's what I want to talk to you about on Buddhist Geeks. But... Oh, okay. <laughs> That's no problem. <laughs> and then we were given the the Buddhist part, the Vipassana part, and the yeah. Tibetans. I mean, from... That's a lot. From the day that, uh, while I was with him, uh, you know, he even told me, I you, you, basically, I was going to meet the next day Kalu Rinpoche, who was one of the great Tibetan lamas. Um, so... We've had that real integration. We just did a thing on Ramdas.org, by the way, called Bhakti Meets Buddhism. That's cool. With Joseph and Ramdas and 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 uh, Roshi Joan and Ramdas and Lama Suryadas and Ram. You know, so that dialogue is really important to us. So, how do yeah. you bring in that other? Yeah. Part. Yeah, it's love part. It's been it's been really it's been really important for us to. Um, I'd have to go back just like a, a step to frame it um, because, you know, we were talking about mindfulness earlier. And one of the things, again, with the internet age that I've noticed and that, that seems to be observed, especially by people in the, in the, in the business industry, you know, in the, in the corporate world, is this sort of phenomena of unbundling um, where, where markets get unbundled, products get unbundled. Um, you know, this happened with, um, it's happening with like the massive online open courses, you know, where the curriculum of college is getting unbundled from the college experience and offered at a scale um, and at a price that's unmatchable by the previous institution. Um, it's, it's happening with HBO and Showtime right now. They're unbundling from the ca- cable packages and they're, yep. they're, they're going to reach more people because, you know, more pe- more and more people are going to be able to just, you know, $10 a month. There's HBO. Um, you know, cord cutters. Um, I think mindfulness is some, it, it's going through the same thing, you know, where it's being unbundled from the previous package, the previous institution that it found itself in, which is mainly Buddhism talked about, you know, quote unquote mindfulness, but it's also in the Western philosophical tradition too. Um, and it's being offered at a scale and at a price that's unmatchable by the previous order. And it's getting, and this is the important part to me is it's also getting rebundled with all these new things. So like the internet age, you know, one way of understanding it is all these previous packages, human institutions of knowledge that we had that were like all these cuisines, you know, with their unique ingredients that were pulled together and made these amazing flavors, you know, chicken tikka masala. They're getting, they're getting pulled apart into their components and then they're getting remelded into these new fusions and they're creating entirely new things. And so part of what, you know, the way we're approaching meditation is sort of saying, okay, yes, these practices and these perspectives are getting unbundled from the contemplative traditions. And that's happening. That's, and that's, there's no way to avoid that. Um, and, and a lot of people get upset about it. You know, they say, hey, like, you know, and, and I think, you know, from a certain point of view, rightfully so you know, hey, you're unbundling meditation from ethics or you're taking awakening out, you know. What is awakening meditation and ethics? You know, from the Buddhist standpoint, those are the three core trainings. Mm. But they're, they are, they're getting pulled apart. And so, um, you know, what my wife and I have done is sort of look at our own experience of practice, you know, in different traditions and say, what were the core components of training that we did? And let's go ahead and actively go with the unbundling. And one of them is, you know, we for us, we just call it the you know heartfulness. It's like the different aspects of the awakened heart, um, you know, that we practice with Jack Cornfield, you know, practicing metta and, and, and the Brahma Viharas and compassion and equanimity and balance, you know, and we've seen reflected elsewhere in different ways, like with Tong Len in the Vajrayana tradition. Um, Zen is not as emphasized, but it's like you kind of find it in there. It's there, but it's not like it's not like a core practice. Um, at least most Zen teachers, it's not. And so for us, we've kind of said, okay, what are these core things? And, and for us, it's, there's five. There's you know, concentration, mindfulness, heartfulness, inquiry, and awareness. You know, awareness being the kind of formless, um, non-doing um, presence. And so our approach with heartfulness is to 
offer that as a pathway of practice, as a as a modular, as like one facet of of training that you could do. And then, of course, within that, there's all these other facets, you know, as you know, um, love and compassion and awe and gratitude and patience and forgiveness and mm. you know, the list goes on. Mm. Um, so for us, like that, that is a really that's a key module in a larger palette of mm. possibility um, for how to train the heart, mind, wow. and body. Beautiful. Yeah. Love that. So our approach is like give people a choice as to how they want to practice and what components they want to use to build um, something up. Okay. Where do we go to find it? Everybody wants, this to is, know. this is happening through meditate.io. That's our meditate.io meditate.io. Yeah. That's, that's our kind of, um, tr- trying to, that's our translation project. How, right. how do we, how do we train our minds in the digital age? Right. Yeah. Oh, so great, Vincent. Thank you. So happy to meet you. This is just, I mean, it's so positive to, bump into and i do all the time i mean i'm so thrilled with the millennial generation and what what's happening far more interested than we we were a little bit isolated you know the boomers and i don't know if we had as much uh interest in spreading the word at that uh, ramdas did he thank god for ramdas at that time but it was it was a it was a bit about me me how do i get out of this fucking horror that i'm in right now <laughs> you know so. which i mean f- fair fair you know yeah i don't know what it was like but it seemed like there was a lot of crazy stuff yeah. going down yeah there was but there's a lot going down right now and that's true not. too so there's a real parallel between the yeah. two yeah except and we I, can't get out of it here you know we don't get nowhere to, we can't go to the east because everything's globally connected now. yeah right we yeah, can't, can't escape hide. I know some places to hide. Actually. Okay, let me know. I'll let you know after this. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, we we got to. We're at the end of the show, but Thank you know you. what? I want a cup. I want one or two recommendations, books that you love. Ah, books. The things that are made of dead trees. Yes. Right? Okay. <laughs> well, um, I, oh. I, I there's so many, but um, just yeah, yeah. Lately, okay, this is a little esoteric, but it's also really cool. Uh, I've been reading this book by a, a Australian Zen teacher named Ross Belliatier, is his name, called Dung Shan's Five Ranks, and it's um, it's this old Chinese poem that's become the really like a cornerstone in how the Zen tradition understands the like the way that the spiritual path unfolds, mm. and it's really beautiful. Okay, now spell it out a little bit. Uh, Dong Shan's five ranks. So D O N G S H A N. Dong Shan. Five ranks. R A N K S. Huh. I really like Thank that you. one a lot. Okay, great. And then another one on the tech side. I'll give you a Buddhist yeah, side and a tech. Perfect for what we're doing here. <laughs> um, so uh, Douglas Rushkoff, the media theorist that I mentioned before, he, I, like his ideas just you know continue to. Um, blow my mind um and uh he just wrote wrote a book called throwing rocks at the google bus (laughs) and it's really an exploration of like how um how the how digital technologies are changing us and and what a and the major problem with creating all these new digital platforms using an industrial mindset and his whole critique is like we're we're taking the industrial operating system and we're applying it in a digital you know with a new digital technology and it's like it's like massively accelerating all the problems of industrialism uh-huh. wow and so his his whole thing is like how do we get back to instead of trying to make ourselves fit the digital how do we get back to the digital serving yeah, the human yeah. and the analog and and we talked about this a little bit similarly in the beginning of this conversation. And I'll go back to a, a wonderful quote from Ramdas: The ego can be a beautiful servant, but a horrific master. Mm. Same kind of thing with, with what we're talking about here with the digital. Mm. So thank you, Vincent. Yeah, thank you. This has been great. It's been fun. I have a new friend, everybody, in Asheville. <laughs> come and come and visit. It's a beautiful place. <laughs> <laughs> Too many people are coming here now. Everybody's okay, sorry. Don't here. come and visit. <laughs> come visit. But uh, uh, this is Mind Rolling, and uh, you'll see uh, everything that we've been talking about will be up on the page on BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Mind Rolling. 
and uh, so you'll be able to find out the books uh, Vincent just mentioned and uh, and that other that little what was that little the app? Lumo Lift the Lumo Lift God that's darn a cool it, one. Gonna, that's and it's on Amazon by the way you can get these books and that Lumo Lift on Amazon and of course bookmark Amazon from Be Here Now Network would you and we'll get a few shekels from what you purchased thanks again see ya we'll do this again.